0: There are statements made that simply state facts, factually, linguistically, they make sense, but as you think about them, you're left with questions. Let me give you some examples. In a London department store, basement bargain upstairs. In an office, after tea break, staff should empty the teapot and stand upside down on the draining board. (laughs) Spotted in a safari park, elephants, please stay in your car. (coughs) Notice in a farmer's field, the farmer allows walkers to cross the field for free, but the bull charges. (laughs) on a report on a repair shop door. We can repair anything. Please knock hard on the door. The bell doesn't work. <laughs> well, Jesus made some statements that are easily understandable on the surface. But often though you understand them, you realize after some thought how truly difficult they are. And how hard it is to take them into your life and to apply them and to live them out in your daily life. Today we're going to look at one of Jesus' statements that, in one sense, it's so easy to say, okay, I I see that. But when you stop to think about it, you realize that there's so much more to it than just a quick read. And it forces you to go beyond a surface acceptance. Here's this statement. It comes out of John's Gospel, chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Straightforward, clear, concise. But think about it. Is it really? I'm left with questions. Chief among them is in the words of Tina Turner's hit song, What's love got to do with it? And here's what I mean. It would seem to me that the better and even more expected statement would have been, if you believe in me, you will keep my commandments. If you believe, obey. The Apostle John connects these two concepts together, uh, and you might even say that he equates the two when he writes this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believe, obey, believe, obey, believe, obey. You know, the connection is certainly true and demonstrable. Believe, obey, faith, obedience. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Root of the Righteous, writes, we can prove our faith by our commitment to it and in no other way. Any belief that does not command the one who holds it is not a real belief, it is a pseudo-belief only. And it might shock some of us profoundly if we were brought suddenly face-to-face with our beliefs and forced to test them in the fires of practical living. There are a number of things that we could say about the connection between faith and obedience, belief and obedience. Uh, First is that obedience is the evidence of faith. John writes about this in his first epistle in the New Testament. In 1 John 2, he says, And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way, in which he walked, the evidence of faith. We could also see that obedience is the activity of faith. If you have your Bible, if you turn to the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 2, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1289. If you're doing it on one of your personal devices, you're on your own. (laughs) James, chapter 2. If you get to Hebrews, you're in the neighborhood. James chapter 2, and I'm going to read a little lengthy section, but it's, it's where James is bringing these two concepts together, faith and obedience, or he might call them, will he will, works. Notice what he says starting in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In other words, there's no obedience. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now that may raise more questions than we answered, but the point is that James says that faith and works, or we might say faith and obedience are inseparable. Why? Because obedience is the activity of faith. W.E. Vine, in his Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, says of obedience, Faith is of the heart, invisible to men. Obedience is of the conduct and may be observed. When a man obeys God, he gives the only possible evidence that in his heart he believes God. Obedience suggests an actual and outward result of the inward persuasion of the truth and consequent faith. We might put it one other way. Faith says, I believe. Obedience shows, I believe. You know, the old cliche, talk is cheap, seems appropriate here. I mean, it's pretty easy to say, I believe, isn't it? Who's to say anything different? But obedience shows that the former is true. So we need to begin to see that faith that pleases God is an obedient faith. It's not enough just to believe in God. We must believe God. And when we believe God, we obey God. So let me go back to my original question. What's love got to do with it? Now, the way I think I want us to go at it and tackle it this morning is really to come out of the framework of what we call the Great Commandment. So let's turn back to Matthew's Gospel, And chapter 22, page 1052, Matthew, chapter 22. And I'm going to read the whole section so we can see this in its context here. We start in verse 34, Matthew 22, starting at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Uh, It's what was called by the Jews the Shema, Uh, In Hebrew, the definition or meaning of that word is hear, hear. Uh, And there are three components that fit into the definition of this Shema. First is to audibly hear, hear. Second is to understand what is being asked. But thirdly, and most importantly, it means to obey. Hear, understand, obey. You might want to go back sometime this week to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see the context within which that statement is made, of which Jesus uh, records it in Matthew 22. So I want, you to, I want you to think together with me about how the heart, how the soul, and how the mind fits here and is involved in loving God and, and how they relate to obedience. So first, we are to love God with all your heart heart the heart is seen in scripture as similar to the root of a tree because from the root the whole tree including the fruit draws its life jesus indicated as much when he said to the pharisees either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit you brood of vipers how how can you speak good when you are evil For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The heart has to do with affections. Affections. Jesus warns us about about setting too great a value on earthly things as opposed to heavenly things. And we might even say, to the exclusion of heavenly things. Where is your your affection in that? John the Apostle picks up the same theme in his first epistle, chapter 2, when he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with this desire. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Where's your heart? Where are your affections mostly placed? See, the truth is that you will become wedded to the sphere you choose to place your affections upon. And the union that's forged deep down within will have its inevitable outworking in the formation of character and in the expression of conduct. I think it's why Solomon would write in Proverbs 4, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's easy, isn't it, to find our affections locking in on earthly things, on people, on, on our jobs, on our families, on our children. They become the focus of our affections. Isn't it easy for them to become more important to us than it is to obey God. I'm not saying they're unimportant. Please hear me. But which is more important? Where do our affections really lie? Now, there's a, there's a reason here why all of this is true, and it has to do with the moral nature of the heart. Look what the scriptures have to say about the heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Not a pretty picture, is it? But that's the heart. Our heart is so fallen, it's so flawed, it's so fickle. You ever notice? You can go to bed at night in love with God and your spouse and your kids and the world and the next morning wake up and not want a thing to do with any of them. That's the heart. It's a fact that my heart's tendency is to place affection on those things that are important to me. Those things that gratify and satisfy me. My heart is no more dependable or predictable than the wind. Remember what I've said before. It's not original with me. But I'll take any credit you want to give. Remember, you will act your way into feeling far quicker than you will feel your way into acting. That's the weakness. That's the fall. It's the flawed nature of our heart. Now, even though that is true, even though the heart is flawed, though it is cleansed in Jesus. So when we come to Him and we trust in Him, He cleans our heart, but we are constantly having this battle. Because on the one hand, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, takes up His dwelling place. On the other hand, we still are dealing with this old nature that keeps moving my affections where they ought not to be. So love God by obeying with your heart. Set your affections on your Savior and Lord Jesus and on His kingdom. How do you do that? I don't know of any other way than just staying connected to Him. I do it through prayer, developing my prayer life. I do it through Bible reading and Bible study. I do it through fellowship with other believers that continue to to sharpen me. So there are things that I have to purposefully, intentionally do if I'm going to stay connected, and that'll help me to love God with my heart, with my affections. And then we're to love God with all your soul. The focus here, I think, with the soul is on the volition. It's the will. It's the will. Can you love God casually? Can you love him incidentally, naturally, effortlessly? I don't think so. Uh, You know, there's an aspect in which I will to love God. Remember, love is essentially not a feeling. It is a commitment of one's will to another. It's a choice. It's an alignment of my life's direction with that of God's and what he wants for me. Let me, let me read a little bit, if you would bear with me, uh, from, from Tozier's book. It's called Man, the Dwelling Place of God, because I think he really hits this point well. He writes, to find our way out of the shadows and into the cheerful sunlight, we need only to know that there are two kinds of love, the love of feeling and the love of willing. The one lies in the emotions, the other in the will. Over the one we may have little control. It comes and goes, rises and falls, flares up and disappears as it chooses, and changes from hot to warm to cool and back to warm again, very much as does the weather. Such love was not in the mind of Christ when he told his people to love God and each other. We could as well command a butterfly to light on our shoulder as to attempt to command this whimsical kind of affection to visit our hearts. The love the Bible enjoins is not the love of feeling, it is the love of willing, the willed tendency of the heart. God never intended that such a being as man should be the plaything of his feelings. The Emotional life is a proper and noble part of the total personality, but it is by its very nature of secondary importance. Religion lies in the will And so does righteousness. The only good God recognized is a willed good. The only valid holiness is a willed holiness. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. So how do you will to love God? If you're anything like me, you've tried to do what pleases God, but so often meet with failure. You know, sort of like making New Year's resolutions. But let me go back to John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that's all well and good, but easier said than done. But if you look at the text, Jesus continues, and he does it with a very important connecting word. That word is and. Look at this from John 14, verses 16 and 17. So he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and... I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. God has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to love Him, to obey Him. And so I submit my will to His will. I choose to to will what he would will, and I trust him then by the Holy Spirit who lives in me to energize my will that I might love him. Is there an area in your life where you are hanging on to your will? Where it's your way? Is it something that God wants to say, listen, we need to do business, we need to change some things here. Pastor Chris reminded me this week of a bumper sticker that used to be somewhat popular sometime back. It was this, God is my co-pilot. Remember seeing that? Mm -hmm. The phrase started from an autobiographical book by Air Force fighter pilot Robert Scott. It was published in 1943. It was made into a black and white movie in 1945. But it became a catchphrase in the 70s and in the 80s. But here's the deal. God doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He wants to be the captain. Someone responded to the phrase, God is my co-pilot with this. If God is your co-pilot, then switch seats. (laughs) If the devil is your co-pilot, then switch planes. (laughs) Who's sitting on the throne of your life? Whose will is most important there? The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 5, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges writes, to live by the Spirit is to live both in obedience to and dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's a balance between our wills expressed in obedience and our faith expressed by our dependence. Faith and obedience trust and obedience, belief and obedience, love with the soul and obedience. And then we need to see that Jesus says to love God with all your mind. Interesting, isn't it? That we are to love God with our mind? Uh, That this somehow fits with obedience? I think what's happened for so many Christians, the mind is divorced from a focus on loving God. Um, and yet our love can be effectual only to the degree that we know the object of our love. Look what Paul's had said in the letter to the Romans, because he's got the same thing in mind. When he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the mind that needs to argue for God's ways. It's in loving God with our minds that we choose to obey him to keep his commandments. I think it's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofted opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Obedience begins right up here. It begins in the mind, knowing what is right, what is God's command, and then we choose to obey. From the mind out through the will comes obedience. Obedience. So let me ask you to think about it maybe this week. Where where does God want you to obey? Where where do you need to choose to obey him? Maybe it's to love your enemies. We talked about that in our first week. Um, Act toward them in a loving way with their best in mind. But how about loving your friends that same way? Or your spouse? Or your children? Does he want you to guard what you allow to come into your mind? Does he want you to help others? Does he want you to be generous with your time and with your talents, with your treasure? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Affections, willing, thinking. All components of loving God, which leads to obedience. So what can you walk away with this morning? Well, first, I think it starts with taking an inventory of your love for Christ. And I think the beginning of this love is a reflection on how much God loves you. Uh, We sang this verse earlier this morning, so let's just add a twist. For God so loved the world, but insert your name there. For God so loved your name, that he gave his only Son, that whosoever, or that if, and insert your name, believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. It starts here with the knowledge that God initiated the work of salvation through Christ. As John will say, you know, we love because He first loved us. It starts with Him. And then assured of His love for us, and that He's poured out His grace upon us, you know, we choose to love Him in return. So we love Him with our affections. We love him with our our minds. We love him with our will that we choose his way. And as we do so, we obey him. We keep his commandments. When we think of the great commandment that Jesus referred to in Matthew 22, we should also take note of the end of that statement as well. And in there he quotes from the Old Testament book of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. When we obey that commandment, we show that we're obeying the first part of the great commandment. We're demonstrating that we obey God when we love others as God has loved us and as we are to love others. These two things, loving God, loving others, fulfills the law. They're linked together. They're inseparable. As John the Apostle asks this question in in his New Testament epistle. How can we say we love God whom we've not seen if we don't love our neighbor who we do see? You see how they're connected together? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let's pray. God, you ask us to do what seems at times impossible things to obey you when you ask of us to do things that don't go naturally in the way we think, in the way we feel. But you have said that if we would truly love you with our heart, our mind, and soul, then we will keep your commandments. We'll obey you. And thank you so much that you've given us the Holy Spirit who dwells within everyone who's trusted in Christ, that he can help us and give us the will of to will to obey. And so would you be at work, Father, in our hearts this week that we might live in such a way that we reflect the character of Christ himself and that others might see him in us because of the way that we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.